High Rock Space Radio. Roger, restart. Yeah, I'm looking at the red. It's now time for The Space Revolution with Rick Tomlinson. Hey there, spacers. You're listening to The Space Revolution here on iRock Space Radio. This is going to be a great show. I have an old friend, compadre, member of The Space Revolution himself with me today, my old buddy, Dan Faber. Dan is the uh, founder of uh, a new company that is carrying uh, propellant into space. Um, I guess the best, easiest way to say this is he's building gas stations in space. It's an incredible uh, project, um, and I'm really excited to learn more about it. So what we're going to do here is we're just going to dive right in. Uh, Dan is here with me right now. How you doing, Dan? Pretty good, Rick. Great to be here. Good to see you again. Yeah, man. Oh, and I should have mentioned Dan's got that uh, that special down under accent, um, and um, he also comes with the uh, down under smile, which uh, which was great uh, for going out and getting investors, right, Dan? Well, and, I hope so. I'll use anything I've got. There you go, man. Use all the tools you got in the cabinet, right? So, look, Dan. I'm going to start. The way we're going to deal with this today is um, as if I don't know hardly anything about what it is you got going on here. What what is OrbitFab, that kind of thing. So um, pretend I don't know much about it. I don't know you very well. I don't know what's happening. Um, tell me, Dan, Mr. Faber, having just met you, um, <laughs> tell me about OrbitFab. Well, you uh, you said we're building gas stations in space, technologies and services and things. I mean, that's pretty much it. We we have a vision of like creating a bustling in space economy that can support permanent jobs in space. And you can't bustle without fuel. Uh, and that's that's pretty much where we decided we'd come in. So our mission is to build a fuel supply in orbit, get satellites the fuel they need, and then eventually evolve into a uh, just a generalized chemicals company. So we want to be a midstream and downstream petrochemicals and, and chemicals company, kind of Dow Corning or Standard Oil in space. Uh, that's that's what we're building. Okay, so why why um, I mean why why can't I just carry the my propellant with me? I mean, you know, we got these big rockets. Why can't I just load up the tanks and go out there with it? Well, that's what everybody does at the moment. It's like take fifteen years worth of fuel in your spacecraft. Um, we don't do that in the ground. You don't take 15 years worth of fuel when you buy a car because that would look pretty stupid. The the amazing thing in space, like it costs so much to get up there and it's so inefficient and we do things like carry all the fuel around. The amazing thing is we do anything at all in space. Right? It's so valuable to be in space that we can do it so efficiently and it's still worthwhile. Just imagine if we could make it more efficient and you didn't have to tow 15 years worth of fuel around all the time. All of a sudden, you'd like move a lot more. You'd come up with new business models. Um, you know, You can get out of the way of things that are coming. There's a, there's a whole bunch of things that you could do if you just had fuel. Everything we design around is in this paradigm where we have one tank of gas. And when that is done, you throw the satellite away because you can't keep it on station. You can't control it. It's going to drift out of its orbit. You, you can't do anything with it when it's got, not got any fuel. So that's that's the constraint we've lived in. And it's this total like paradigm. Everyone's got these blinkers on and that's what they see and they can believe. As soon as you get people starting to think about what they can do with fuel, they're like, oh, I could put a smaller fuel tank. I got a smaller spacecraft. Then I need smaller like control systems to control my spacecraft. So that makes the spacecraft smaller again. So then I need an even smaller fuel tank. And it just goes on and on and on. Then I can move it to where this new customer wants me to be halfway through the mission if there's a new customer. And if something goes wrong with it, I haven't like spent a billion dollars launching fuel, which is like it's insanely expensive to launch things to orbit. So all of these inefficiencies just build on each other and means that so many business models aren't viable right now. You get fuel, it's like just you build infrastructure, other things will build on it we haven't even imagined. Okay, so you're telling me then that, um, first of all, I didn't know you had to move satellites around, right? I mean, right? I mean, most people don't realize that. I, I do, but, you know, most people don't realize that, you know, they, they think, I, I, I would presume that, hey, you put a satellite up there um, and it's just going to sit there, right? I mean, so is it, are they burning propellant? Yeah, all the time. So if you want to keep two satellites coordinated, the moon and the sun and the earth is lumpy, like they're all pulling on these spacecraft. There's no friction. There's nothing they can hold on to. So they just drift away. And you, you have to use fuel to keep them, keep them in the right place. right? So you move it back and then it drifts past where you want to be. You got to move it back again and drift past again. You're constantly using the fuel. And it might seem only a little bit, but you'll use a little bit each day. It, it adds up really quick. 
And because it's the life limiting factor, like 85% of satellites, when they reach the end of their life, it's because they're out of fuel. It's not because there's any problems with the technology or you know they haven't got customers because they're obsolete. 85% of satellites is because they run out of fuel because that's what they were designed with. And it's it's a completely like limited resource that they have. So and we, we talked to some of the government customers and they say that they spend three days just doing the paperwork to get the signatures if they ever want to move their satellite. Because if they do a big move of the satellite, it can reduce the life of that satellite by 10%. Mm-hmm. So if you've got some crisis and you absolutely have to move your satellite a few times, mm-hmm. right, you've got 10 opportunities to move it and then the lifetime has gone to zero. So you really can't do a lot with these assets once they're in orbit. You have to think and plan two, five, 10, 15 years in advance. And if you know what the world's going to look like in 15 years, you're doing a lot better than I am. But that's how we have to think about these things. And that's that's the hugely limiting. Like so many different levels, that's limiting. So, okay, so let's say I've got my uh, my direct TV satellite out there um, and um, I run out of propellant uh, now, today's version of it. What do I do with my satellite? Well, you can burn it up in the atmosphere. So you just lower it down until it's in the top of the atmosphere. If it's in a low orbit, you can just leave it there for a few decades and eventually it should deorbit. If it's in a high orbit, you push it into these areas we call graveyard orbits where there's just a whole bunch of abandoned satellites, but they're in an area that nobody intends to use, so we'll just let them go. So that, that's what we do. And a lot of them, like sometimes they just go dark and, and it's like having a car stall and you leave it in the middle of the freeway and you go and get another car. And so now there's all these cars sitting in the middle of the freeway, space junk, Right. And the space junk's annoying because you've actually got to burn more fuel when you come up to them to get out of the way of them, which shortens the life of your mission because you've only got so much fuel in the tank. So this whole sort of compounding problem of not having enough fuel to even be able to run a garbage collection service. Can you imagine a garbage collection service where you've got to build a garbage truck and you go and tow it? You build a tow truck. You go tow a car. You do that maybe twice and then you run out of fuel in the tow truck and you've got to build a complete new shiny tow truck to go out there to tow the next, the next car off the freeway. But that's like what we're doing in space. It's impossible to get rid of the junk we have. That's just one business model that doesn't close without fuel. So I built my billion-dollar satellite. I sent it up there. It runs out of propellant after a period of time, and then I just have to put it in the junkyard. And it could still be perfectly fine. It could be like totally a, a functional satellite, and I have to throw it away. Yeah. Right? Okay. Majority so of satellites, that's the case. So you guys come along and say, okay, we're going to start – Coming out to you guys uh, with our uh, our gas cans or jerry cans, and uh, you know, of course, I think uh, you know I'm taking AAA, right? So uh, I bring out a gas. I'm sitting by the side of the spaceway, and you guys are going to show up. Um, but these guys that are out there right now, these satellites that are out there right now, um, they were before you guys existed, right? So um, do they have like gas caps on them? No, that, that was one of the biggest problems we realized when we started the company. None of the satellites have a gas cap. They, they have these little valves on them that they need to, to fill and drain and test the, fueling, uh, the, the tanks on the ground. And then they fill them up. They're ready for launch. They put the caps on. They lock them down. They cover it in insulation. They hide them all away. And then in orbit, if you want to get that open, you've got to send up some of the most complicated robotics to carefully peel all the layers back and undo the screws and everything and try and inject fuel into that fuel port. It's, that'd be insanely expensive to take that much robotics. So what we did was said, oh, let's just build gas caps for satellites. Let's build fueling ports. And I, uh, I got this one here. Like, this is it. Right? It's, a, it's a drop-in yep. replacement for the fill drain valves. It's got a couple of little fueling ports on the front. This is our first product. We're basically a gas cap company right now. And, uh, and so any satellite that's got one of these, then we can go up to it and refuel it directly. It's a very low-cost architecture. For any satellite that doesn't have one of these, like all the legacy satellites, there's now companies that are trying to do tow trucks, right? They're trying to tow and, and um, manipulate and extend the life of all of these satellites that exist up there. So we'll sell the tow trucks fuel, and then they'll be able to sell the services to the, to the legacy satellites. Meanwhile, all the new satellites take a fueling port, and we can refuel them. So, you've got the, so you're talking to the guys who are doing the, uh, the people that are doing the, uh, the towing, right, the tugboats. Um, and so they're already starting to put your gas caps on their tugboats. Yeah, that's right. So Lockheed Martin are operational with a, a life extension vehicle or a mission extension vehicle. They basically attach to a satellite and they take over the thruster function. It's like strapping a jetpack onto a satellite so that it can keep going, right? That's how they add more fuel. And we're like, hey, how about we refuel your jetpacks? 
will refuel your servicing vehicle. And so they actually invested in Orbit Fab a year ago. So uh, Northrop Grumman came along and invested. Lockheed Martin was interested as well. They invested too. Um, those two companies never invest together, by the way. That was that was a whole adventure. But then uh, we we signed a big deal with Astroscale, which is a Japanese satellite servicing company, and they they want to buy a huge amount of propellant in geostationary orbit. They're also doing this jetpack idea, but they also have the garbage truck, like the the debris removal aspect of the business model. They have. Uh, tugs and towing between different orbits like there's seven or eight different sort of tow truck business models satellite servicing business models and all of them need fuel because all of them need to go to a go to another spacecraft service that get to the next one move them around like they're all fuel dependent wow and so now you're you're basically you're starting with sort of the rescue vehicles what luck are you having with the the legacy the the old school the, the people that build those direct sea TV satellites and stuff, because uh, there's obviously a, a time lag, right? They have at the very beginning the design, all the different functions, the the way it affects the operation of the satellite. They have to build in the fact that they're. It's not just a gas cap, as as you and I know, the dynamics in space, the fluids floating around, all of that changes the structure and design of the spacecraft itself, which means that that's got to get in at the early phase of design, right? So, are, are you working with them? Yeah, of course. We we published a, a user guide, the sort of interface control document and all the design things you need to, to take into consideration when you're adding uh, a fueling port to a satellite. So we have that document published uh, and the designers can use that. We also work with the thruster manufacturers because the satellite owners, they buy from a satellite integrator. Like It's like if you want to run a fleet of trucks, you don't build trucks, you could buy a truck from Mac or something like that. Right. So we talk to the folks that put together the trucks and they say, oh, we get our engines from somebody else and we'd like to have the fueling ports attached to the, to the fuel system. Right. So then we've got to go to Aerojet Rocketdyne or, uh, or one of the, the other um, thruster manufacturers. We say, how about we integrate the fueling port with your um, propellant system? And so that's the whole value chain that we've got to integrate into. But we get a, a pretty good response when we go to the operators. They, they, a lot of them, they really get it. They can see the advantage, but they've also right now got pretty good business models. And they don't want to screw with it. They don't want to bring in risk. So a lot of the big established operators, what they're telling us is you've got to prove this on all. You've got to dock two spacecraft together, transfer fuel, show it can be done, do it a few times, what have you. And then we will come and beat down your door. But until you've proved it, we're going to stand back and, and watch it happen. And so that's that's it, right? It's, it's on us now to, to fly it, prove it, test it, make sure it works. And that's what we've been doing. That's great, man. So look, we're going to take a little break here and come back. And when we do, I want to hear what it is you're doing right now to get that credibility. Uh, you know, what it is, you know, as you said, they want to see you flying them in space. I want to hear what you're doing to make that real for these people um, and for your investors, you know. So, uh, folks, we're uh, listening to, you're listening to uh, uh, IROC Space Radio. It's the Space Revolution. I'm Rick Tomlinson, and we're talking to Dan Faber of OrbitFab, the builder of the first gas stations in space. And we'll be right back. Hey, you're back with me, Rick Tomlinson, and uh, listening to Space Revolution on IROC Space Radio. So look, Dan, we were talking before the break here about um, the, the need, the market, let's say, uh, that exists today and, and how you're building that market, how you're uh, helping uh, both uh, get propellant to these, these spacecraft so they can stay in orbit a lot longer, um, and also, uh, which is interesting, that you're also gassing up. And we we both know we're using words loosely here, but you know, metaphorically and, and analogous to the earth, whatever. But you're also gassing up the tow trucks, uh, the repair vehicles. Um, but then you you know you're dealing with big money here. You're dealing with a, a very uh, a hidebound establishment, even though space itself is rather new. Within space, the satellite people, they're the old school, right? Uh, the big aerospace guys, they're the old school. They've been around a while. Uh, here comes Dan with his big smile and his Australian accent. He's got I a solution for you, man. And, and they're going to wonder, like, okay, show me. So what have you been able to show them? Well, we started the company in 2018. Right? We, we had this vision. Let's, let's build the, the fuel supply chain so we can get a bustling economy in space. And, uh, and we, we talked to some customers and they said, you know, we'd actually pay a bucket load of money for that, right? There's, our satellites run out of fuel. So 
that was good. Then we uh, we went off to raise money ourselves. We thought, oh, we'll, we'll raise a bit of money to, to really do a really good market study and understand what we need to deliver and what a product might look like. And we stumbled across this opportunity with the International Space Station National Lab. And they run parallel to NASA. They're funded by Congress. They have like half of the launch mass to the space station and half of the astronaut time. That's their assets. They don't have a lot of money. But, um, but we talked to them and they said, look, they're responsible for not just science research on the space station, but also commercialization and the space station and sort of low Earth orbit. And they said they'd, they'd fly us to the space station. In fact, they'd pay us to go up and, and do some tests and, uh, and get some data about how satellites might behave with sort of a lot more fuel and, and uh, expandable fuel tanks. There's a whole bunch of things we had put in our roadmap that you could use and, and build a, uh, a sort of fuel supply chain on. And so we, uh, we raised a, a little bit of pre-seed money from, uh, from Silicon Valley. And, uh, and we got this, this offer from the, the International Space Station National Lab and said, all right, let's, let's go for it. Let's build a, um, a fuel tanker demonstration for, for uh, the International Space Station. And so we built two uh, demonstration units, two test beds, and, uh, and we put them on the International Space Station. So it turns out, actually, we, we use water instead of fuel because, you know, it's, it's astronaut safe. That's what we thought. We talked to NASA and they said, we've had about three gallons of fuel in a, in a tank and we pump it across to another tank and test the connections and test the pumps and test the dynamics and those kind of things. And NASA said, oh, hang on a minute. You put water on the space station. If there's a, if there's a problem with your tank and it leaks out and it gets onto an astronaut's face, you can drown an astronaut. All right, well, that's pretty scary. Because <laughs> it, it turns out you can't push the water away because there's no gravity, right? It doesn't drain. And surface tension is the strongest force. It just wraps back onto your face. So, and you can't yell for help if you're under an inch of water. And so that wow. was catastrophic level hazard. And this is like, we were throwing the book at you. Get ready for this. And then we explained the experiment more. I was like, just relax. It's a tank full of water, right? We're going to pump it backwards and forwards. And when it's done, we'll pump it into the space station and you can keep the water and drink the water. And they're like, you're going to pump it into our space station, into the water bus, like the, the water lines. If you overpressurize that, you could blow up the lines. There'd be water everywhere. It'll be a disaster because it won't sink to the bottom, right? It'll float into the electronics. This is a catastrophic level hazard. We're going to throw the book at you. Okay. This will take you two years to get done. And we're like, no, there's a launch in December. And it was then June. We got, we got our money. We started talking with, with NASA in earnest, right? We had a, a sketch on a piece of paper. And, uh, and they said, well, there's, there's a launch in November. And so you'd have to ship it in October. Like we had four months to get this built if we wanted to hit the December launch. And they're telling us it would take us 24 months. So we did it in four. We, right. we, we had a team of four people. We got a bunch of other engineers helping us and, uh, and just managed that. We had to understand what NASA was saying, what their real concerns were and how to deal with that. We had to figure out what the connections were for the, the water bus on the International Space Station. The NASA folks had to call the space station and ask what the connector was because they weren't sure either. All of these things that we had to go to. And, uh, and yeah, in the end, it, there, just, there were so many war stories in that. We pulled long hours. We did what we had to do. We built that thing in four months, took it to the space station. It was crew rated. It worked on station successfully. And so within a year, we had two test beds that had operated on station. We began the first private company to resupply the space station with water. So that was year one. That's when we got going. There's so much in what you just said. Uh, I mean, first of all, um, you know, you and I have been around the space field quite a while, and that water problem, the drowning problem, I had never really thought about it that way. Um, and of course, that's NASA's job is to to yeah. deal with these things. Um, the other uh, the other issue too, the uh, the overpressure issue. And look, you know, they've got people's lives on the line. Uh, well, we'll and a, a two hundred billion dollar space station they want to protect. Right. Absolutely. Um, so obviously. That's important. How were you able to overcome, you know, those types of issues in that short period? Because I'm sure a lot of this wasn't just like, hey, we can show you it works. Somebody's got to sign off, right? And somebody's got to say, okay, fine. We trust these guys. That's, a, that's absolutely right. And, and every call we'd have with them, they'd bring more people on. It was it was uh, about a month and a half in. Like, what's that? Uh, six weeks into to a four-month development program. And we had a, a call with NASA, and they brought on about, I don't know, 40 people, 50 people, something like that, who knew everything about what's going on in station. So we, we start from the beginning again. 80% of these people, that's it, new. It's the first time they've heard about what we're doing. And we walk through what we're going to do. 
and say, yeah, we're going to pump the water across and then we're going to pump it into the space station, have a little pause. And someone says, you can do that? It just blew their mind as to how you might operate, that somebody like us might send up a tank of water, plug it into the space station and pump the water in. That's not how they were designed to operate. And they're all in this mindset that this is how things should be. But then after we explained it, they said, well, why couldn't you, right? It clearly doesn't break physics. And they're like, oh, I guess you could do that. And then they start to work with us, right? And so a lot of the time it's a matter of understanding what they're concerned about, just talking to them at a human level and find out what their experience is because everything's based on something, right? Everything's based on something that's happened before. And so it's that, that understanding at a human level, spending time to listen to them. And then a lot of the time they're like, we don't know what the solution is. I'm sure you could make this work. If it doesn't fit a rule that we've written, we can write a waiver because you'll probably figure out a good way for it. I'm like, okay, that's all we needed to hear. Here's our design. By the way, I haven't told you, but we've already made this, uh, and it's and it's uh, you know we're going into the final assembly. All you have to do is sign off on it, and we'll be fine. And they're like, well, I guess that will work, right? But then we had to listen to them. <laughs> Great, right? They're never going to say yes. So you have to listen to them and understand and explain to them. But also, we took the risk. We got the final requirements of what, what we had to meet two weeks before we shipped the hardware. Now, if we'd have got those requirements and there was something in there that we didn't meet, that we, that we couldn't, uh, couldn't sort of negotiate around or understand because it was a real risk, we would have had to start again. And that risk was on us. So we were prepared to take that risk. And then because we thought we could, we could understand what was really needed. And so it's something a, a bigger company wouldn't do. Um, it's something if you if you come from different approaches, you can't take that risk. As a startup company, that was exactly the risks that we could take. And so the way that you approach it really depends on what organization you are, what the risk profile is, who your, your counterparts are, and then how you work with them to get them to buy into the approach you had. So just I mean, our, our CTO, James Baltitude, our chief engineer, absolutely brilliant at building connections with people and understanding what really matters translating that into engineering and then making the hardware work. Absolute genius. I love it. And, you know, it's, it's, I'm a Trek fan and uh, I've been watching the, uh, uh, the new world's uh, Trek series. And it just happens this week. They're in the middle of a negotiation um, with a a species that engages in radical empathy, right? Uh Listening to the other, where the other person is coming from. And that's kind of what you guys did, right? You, you are, uh, rather than coming in confrontationally, saying, NASA, you owe us this, or whatever, you have to realize in this particular project, they're the customer. And you have that's to right. understand them as the customer and then work with it as you're under complete pressure. Um, brilliant. I, I, I hadn't heard the inside story before, and I, it's quite brilliant. There's a lot to it. Through through that, we learned like paying attention to stakeholders really matters. Mm-hmm. And it's not just like who you call a customer. Any stakeholder, it matters. But you also have to understand um, their incentives, right? What's, what's their business model? Individually, what gets them their promotion? What gets them to their retirement? What gets them to, to their next job, if that might be what they're looking for? As an individual, what is it that's motivating? What's interesting to you? What do you want to see happen? Why did you take on this job? As an organization, what motivates the organization? Has it been criticized recently? Is it about to get reviewed? Um, who does it serve to get its next paycheck? And uh, you know, the next uh, increase in funding for the organization. And there's usually many layers to this and there's many stakeholders. So if you can dig in and understand those, you can find the buttons to press, but you can find the value you can create. And so for, for the International Space Station National Lab, they'd got a lot of science done, but they hadn't done a lot of commercialization. So to have a good news story about how they'd helped a company, a commercial company, um, come into existence through the help that they'd offered at the ISS National Lab, that was something that was extremely valuable for them because they hadn't got them before. And that's what they were being measured on by Congress who decided the next budget. So once we understood that, we knew that all we had to do was say, okay, we'll support you in that. We'll put time into making sure you get a good story. But you've got to help us to succeed so that we can help you get the good story. Then we're all on the same page. And so we did that at sort of every level we could find, was find those incentives and get them lined up. That's great. So real quick, uh, we're going to be going to a break here in a moment, but uh, uh, is the equipment still up there that you set up there? I know no, the actually, it's, 
It's, it's downstairs from where I am right now. They brought it back from the International Space Station. We pumped the water across, so most of the water is up there, and they're still drinking that water. But, uh, yeah, they, we got the hardware back. We're able to look at it and see, like, where some things glitched up and learn a lot from it. And then we also, uh, after we closed our seed round, we put the first operational fuel depot in space as a free-flying spacecraft. We did that last year. So we have the first depot up there as well. It's got the fueling ports. So these, these fueling ports we talked about before, there's two of these on that first depot in orbit. So they've got flight heritage, which your listeners might know. Flight heritage in the space industry, that means everything. If you've got the choice between buying a piece of hardware that somebody's flown to space and tested in space or buying some hardware that it's been tested on the ground but never flown to space, you'll always take the one that's flown to space. Much more certainty that it'll work. So, so yeah, since then, we've, we've kept flying things to orbit. Uh, that's great. Well, look, we're developing some flight heritage right here uh, as we talk. And uh, I really appreciate you, by the way, being an early guest on the show. Uh, we're going to come back and, and dive in a little bit more. Uh, Spacers, uh, you're, you are listening to uh, The Space Revolution. I'm Rick Tomlinson, and I'm here with Dan Faber of Orbit Fab. I'm going to refer to him as the gas man. And uh, <laughs> uh, he and his company are doing an amazing job of opening up the frontier. We're going to come talk about some of the bigger aspects of this, a little bit of our history, uh, because we've, uh, we've worked together in the past on some of this uh, type of work. But again, Rick Tumlinson, Space Revolution here on IROC Space Radio, and we'll be right back. Yeah, welcome back. You are listening to the Space Revolution. I'm Rick Tumlinson, and we're on IROC Space Radio with Dan Faber of Orbit Fab. So, Dan, we're getting into you know some of the uh, interactions you've had with the Federal Space Agency, the International Space Station people, um, but you know you and I have had some interactions over the years too. And, uh, you know, I, I need to, uh, you know, in full disclosure to the listeners here, Dan and I were part of a company called Deep Space Industries that I, I'd started a few years ago and uh, uh, ran into Dan, um, what was it, the Isle of Wight. And oh, man. Isle of Man, the other one. Yeah, I was thinking about the rock concert. Um, and the Isle of Man at a conference and... Uh, uh, at that time, we were starting to think about doing some asteroid mining together. And uh, yeah, you and I ran into each other. Uh, I think it was a restaurant, right? It was at the bar at the hotel, I think. And uh, yeah. we, we started talking about asteroid mining and prospecting. And I told you how I do it with really, really small spacecraft. And uh, if I remember correctly, you said, I need to tell you something. You grabbed a napkin and you wrote a non-disclosure agreement on a napkin and shoved it across the bar at me. Right. I think I still have that somewhere. Um, yeah. And uh, and so the relationship started. Now, this was uh, back in the day, and um, we, we had a heck of a run on it. Um, uh, I think it was 2012 we rolled out, uh, roughly, in that period. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, our friends at Planetary Resources had their company going. Uh, we were a bit early. I, uh, when people talk to me about it and say, well, what was, you know, why didn't it work? Well, um, number one, we were early. Number two, we were early. Um, and number three, we were early. Uh, but, you know, um, that company was based on the idea of, of utilizing space resources. And uh, you've definitely stayed true to that concept, right? You've just kind of moved to a different part of the supply chain that's going to be Love necessary me. as we move off the planet, right? So, um what do you, how do you see this playing out now as we move into that grand picture of this frontier and using space resources? Where does OrbitFab plug into that as we start to grow beyond today's satellites into what's going to happen tomorrow? I've been, I've been working on this longer than that, Rick. I, uh, I decided in first year undergrad back in the mid-90s that uh, you know, if, if we wanted to get off this rock, and, and that would probably be the most exciting thing that would happen in my lifetime to humanity is, is getting humans off this planet. Um, if we wanted to do that, it had to be commercial. It had to, to command a profit in some business. So I wrote down a list of industries I thought could pay for the first permanent jobs in space. And that list was tourism and mining. And I couldn't see myself as a tour operator. So, uh, so that's it. I've been pushing on the rope of asteroid mining for 25 years now, if you can believe it. Um, but yeah, got a mechanical engineering degree, built a bunch of satellites, started building companies. And uh, you got to me a couple of years before I was going to be ready to, to set up my own asteroid mining company. I already had the idea in my head. 
So, uh, so that was a lot of fun when you, when you briefed me at that bar in the Isle of Man, it all just fell into place. Um, so yeah, we, uh, we had an interesting go at it. The, uh, and the, the strategy we had there was, was to build the tech that you needed to, to do the asteroid prospecting because the tech didn't exist. And, the, and then sell that technology. The small thrusters were the, were the main product. Um, but we had a whole line of small thrusters going and, and we actually you know, got the prime contract for a few spacecraft by leveraging that because no one else had those thrusters, right? It was a, it was a gap in the market. But uh, anyway, our hope was that we'd be able to use that tech and, and uh, test it by going out to an asteroid to prove to everybody that it worked. We never quite got to that stage. But we definitely did um, change a bunch of things by building those thrusters. Uh, at, at OrbitFab, it was really just the next step after that where we were building thrusters at Deep Space Industries that could run off materials you could get off an asteroid. And nobody else had a thruster that could run off that material. Right? They also didn't have a thruster in that size class and what have you. So there was a gap in the market as well, which we, we, we went after and exploited. But from the bigger picture, there was, there was nothing at any size class that could run off the material you could get off an asteroid. So we were building that. And our, our thinking was you can't sell the metals into a terrestrial market initially. Right? It's a very competitive market. But if you can get propellant, if you can get volatiles out of asteroids and turn them into fuel, that's worth a lot in orbit. And so first you've got to have the thrusters that could use that fuel. And then you've got to build that market, get more people to adopt those thrusters. So what we did with OrbitFab was take a different approach to exactly the same, effectively the same strategy, right? Rather than build the thrusters and, and try and shift the market to those new thrusters, what we've done at OrbitFab is say, well, people want the fuel that they want right now. And even though you can't make hydrazine and xenon from material on an asteroid, there's just no nitrogen and xenon to, to use for, for making these fuels. Still, we could create a market in space for fuel by launching this material to orbit. And then when everybody's used to launching and refueling their spacecraft, then we'll switch them over to these fuels from asteroids because ultimately they're going to be cheaper. And so in that way, we create the market through a sort of backdoor mechanism. And then OrbitFab's long-term goal is not just to be this downstream oil and gas company, right? Just, just doing distribution and logistics. That's how we break into the market. But our goal is to become a midstream oil and gas company in space. We want to take the things from asteroids on the moon and we want to process them, put them through a chemicals plant and come out with fuel, water, air, 3D printer feedstock, minerals to grow plants, like anything that you want. We want to build the chemical plants that sit in the middle of this industrial economy in space. That's what OrbitFab has become. Yeah, and, and what I like about this and the brilliance of it, um, and I think this is part of what, and, and true, you, you you were obviously in the field for a while, and it was almost like we were just like like minds converging and, and saying, really okay, was. Let's, let's do something together. Uh, but what I like about what you're doing here is um, there is this massive uh, uh, amount of investment. There is the technological hurdles and the time that it takes, and this is what we discovered with, with Deep Space Industries, to go from, shall we say, zero to being able to extract these materials, these resources, get them into a usable supply chain, and then have a customer base that's ready to accept them, and all the pieces in between. So what you've done is you're kind of coming in from the side into the middle of the chain, right? Uh, the customers aren't quite there yet in, in, in the future, the big ones. Yep. Um, a little little company called SpaceX and Starship, you know, <laughs> I probably have a couple of gas ca gas caps on the side of it. Uh, they're not ready yet, but they're coming. And on the other end of it, you've got the actual extraction, which again, a few years in the future before we can go out to an asteroid and come back with liquids, which is what you're specializing in for now. Um, yep. So you're coming into the middle and you're serving an existing market right now getting your legs on the ground getting the all-important revenue flowing staffing up expertise and moving forward into it what do you see happening as far as the transition that you're going to have to make at some point from this existing satellite infrastructure into this this bigger because this is you know we are talking satellites some people may be thinking we're talking mega but we're actually talking fairly small amounts of propellant right now. How do you see yourselves transitioning into this big market that may be coming? Or is that just going to be gradual steps? Well, you know, it's, it's gra gradual steps, perhaps. But, um, you know, there's, there's a, a strategy to it. Right? There, there are things that we do first and second. So right now, it's, it's provide the propellants people want to buy. And it's measured in 
you know, tens of kilos, hundreds of kilos, maybe tons for, for the biggest spacecraft that we'll be refueling initially. Uh, and that this propellant is all storable propellant. It's not cryogenic propellants that you use to get rockets off the ground. So we're not going to be refueling rockets when they get to orbit. We're looking at the satellites that spend you know, years or even decades in space and, uh, and the fuels that they need to take up there. So we've chosen this little niche that we know that we can service, that we think that we can get money out of on the shortest time scale. And we want to eat that first and help it grow, right? And just having the infrastructure for that part of what we're doing will enable a whole bunch of different businesses and a whole ecosystem. So actually what we have, we, we moved to Denver from Silicon Valley in, uh, in January this year. We've got 60,000 square foot building here, which is much bigger than what we need. We've already got a few companies that have moved in. We built this little ecosystem inside our building. And so everything we're doing, trying to build this ecosystem on the ground and in space and encourage people to think about what they do with fuel when they've got it. And so that's, that's part of what we do is grow that market. And just for established players, but also for new players who come up with things. Because 20 years ago, people invented the internet and no one knew what it was for. And then finally, somebody realized it was for, for advertising, right? And there's a few other things you do with the internet, but people had to find those business models after the infrastructure existed. So that's the real exciting thing I look at. But in parallel to what we're doing, Elon Musk wants to go to Mars and wants to refuel his starships in orbit. So there's a huge opportunity at some point that we might be able to get into that and look at, at refueling those kind of those rockets to take take people and things longer longer distances after they immediately get off the planet. There's also the the uh, commercial space stations that are getting built. So you know, Blue Origin and Sierra Space have teamed up, and uh, um, Nanoracks and Voyager Space have have their system. There's I think four different commercial space stations, Axiom Space, what have you. They need commodities. They need air, water, fuel. Uh, but they're also a source of, of new and interesting business models. They can assemble spacecraft in the space stations in zero gravity that you couldn't make on Earth because you've got to put it through this violent uh, episode of being on a rocket and accelerating out of the gravity well of Earth. And, and they can build these things in orbit and then refuel them from fuel that's available in orbit. They also breathe in oxygen, so they need a supply of oxygen. They breathe out carbon dioxide. You've got to get rid of that. So we're looking at offtake agreements for the waste products from space stations. It's a whole bunch of things we start plugging into, which start off small. But Jeff Bezos wants to put a million people in space. Elon Musk wants to put a million people on Mars. I think we should we should be moving heavy industry off Earth because while while getting a million people into into orbit or Mars might save humanity, getting heavy interest industry off Earth will save the Earth. And that's how we get to carbon neutral on Earth is to generate the electricity and do the real power-intensive manufacturing and eventually mining, right? We, we get the material out of, out of the asteroids and the moon. You stop having to bring that material from Earth. You stop having to mine it on Earth. Finally, we can start really looking at Earth as a nature preserve, as a great place to visit but not necessarily to live. This is, I think, what our future is. So we will build into that from starting at the point where we are right now, we're a gas cap company. Yeah, I, I, I have to say, yeah, I have to say, this is what I like about what you're doing and, and a lot of the uh, the new space companies out there are doing. Um, the, 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 the public, the people out in the world, they hear about Elon, they hear about Jeff, uh, big shiny rockets, mega projects, billionaires. What you've got here is a, a company that is almost agnostic in terms of uh, who you service, uh, what you're working on is some very basic principles, moving things around, fluids, connecting to things in space, creating standards like gas cap standards, things like that, that enable you. So you're, you really, you know, <laughs> to put it bluntly, I mean, you're, you could be pumping gas in and sewage out. Right? Yeah, totally. Same technologies, same very vital elements of an ecosystem. And so if there are any entrepreneurs listening, um, this is truly something very important for you to get. You don't have to go for the big, shiny, mega object. Look at what is practical, pragmatic, and feeds into an ecosystem that you want to break into. And so with that, I'm going to wrap up this section with you, Dan. We're going to come back and have some fun. I want to learn a little bit more, have the, uh, the listeners learn a little bit more about Dan Faber, the person, where he came from, and then where he's going. So you're listening again, folks, to uh, IROC Space Radio. I'm Rick Tomlinson. This is Space Revolution, and I'm, introdu and I'm interviewing 
space revolutionary, Dan Faber. Thanks. We'll be right back. All right, people of Earth, thanks for coming back here. We're listening. You're listening to iRock Space Radio. My name is Rick Tomlinson, and this is the Space Revolution. We're talking to Dan Faber, CEO and founder of Orbit Fab, the providers of propellant and all kinds of other services, it seems, as we move into the frontier. All right, Dan. So look, you were, you were kind of hitting on the big picture stuff here. Um, uh, at the end of the last section here, but um, what what lit you up, right? Um, you know, I know you're you're from a place most people don't even know about, other than uh, uh, maybe from watching Warner Brothers cartoons. You're from Tasmania. Yep, the that happened. Southern tip of Australia, uh, and I have to admit that's about as much as I knew about Tasmania as well. You have Tasmanian devils down there. Um, but um, you are the Tasmanian devil who's coming to space himself. So how did you go from there to here? What what got you going, man? Oh, I uh, I grew up on a farm. My uh, my grandfather was a dairy farmer, and uh, and my my parents had the first house in the bush after the bitumen ended. But uh, my dad's an engineer. My mom's a scientist. They had a wall of science fiction, and I probably read all of that as a kid. Um, and then my, my mom had decided that I would never want for lack of books. And so she'd take me to the library and some of my earliest memories are being dropped in the library while she went off in the city and, uh, and did the shopping and I would terrorize the librarians. Uh, but, but I, uh, I think I read through all the science fiction I could find in the library and then found that I, there was a, a terminal they'd, they'd just installed and I could order all the science fiction books in the state. Um, and when I ran out of that, I learned how to hack the terminal and get on the internet. But, uh, that's another story. <laughs> But there's probably probably a lot to do with it. it. Was just reading all the classic science fiction stuff that was around in the uh, in the late eighties. Really, really. Who's your favorite science fiction author? Oh gosh, I, I like the classics. Same Arthur C. Clarke, Larry Niven, fantastic stuff. Best book that I've read lately though has got to be Delta V by uh, Suarez. Suarez, his name keeps coming up. Um, hopefully, we'll get him on the show. Um, what's your favorite science fiction movie? <laughs> Um, can I say The Expanse? So that's a series. We'll go with The Expanse. Okay, but that, that's a series. But what about a movie? I, I was going to come to the series next, but any movie that stands out that you know, oh, you gosh, think I don't know. And Star Wars is also not a movie. It's a series of them. Do I have to pick one? Uh, you can. I'll, I'll let you off the hook. The Expanse is good. I'll let you go with The Expanse. For those that, that can't, can't hear on the, on the radio or, or, or see if there's video, I'm, uh, I'm about six foot six or maybe a bit more, and I've been accused of just looking like a belter. And I can tell you I'm just trying to get home. Yep, yep. you're tall even on the radio, Daniel. Tall even <laughs> on the radio. Uh, you're certainly not gravitationally impaired, uh, that I know. And I've been teasing you about that since we, since we met. Uh, no, and okay, here's, a, here's another little wacky question for you. Just let's say you're cruising above the lunar surface, uh, several, several thousand clicks an hour going uh, over it so you can feel the speed of it. You're coming over the horizon and you reach down and you're going to put on some, some jam. What's your piece of music you would put on at that point? Oh, gosh, I'm, I'm pretty musically illiterate. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not sure I have a favorite music. Really? Okay, yeah. that's an answer, man. That's an answer. Now, I, I, uh, I, we get all kinds of answers, you know. And when I talk to people, uh, you know, it's a ZZ Top or it's Debussy or or whatever. But um, I was too busy filling my brain with math to uh, to learn too much about music. All right, so that allows the co-pilot to pick out her favorite tune, and then you're just going to listen to that. So that always works well. Friends that like uh, heavy metal and the like, and they're always happy to have me around because they can put on whatever they want, and I won't complain. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Speaking of friends, I, I've noticed uh, a pattern with you. Um, when when we were working together, you lived in a communal habitat called the Rainbow Mansion. And it was very, very clear to me that you enjoy that sort of uh, give and take of, of smart people being around you and that just constant flow of things. And what you were saying a little while ago about how you rented this oversized space. And now you filled it with other companies. Is this this is an important part of I think maybe maybe I'm not projecting here, but uh, your creative flow having a lot of brilliant people around you who are creative and different kinds of people 
that gets you going, doesn't it? Yeah, and I, I have some terrible ideas, Rick. I need smarter people to tell me that they're wrong and give me better ones. <laughs> I hope you listen to those people more than I do. But um, when you're looking at where we are right now, you, you had this experience with, with uh, NASA and the space agency. Um, as you know, um, you know I, I'm very big on the private sector, uh, new space, you know, my baby. Um, and you have had this experience with the agency. Um, they are not monolithic. There may be a lot of bureaucrats in Washington. You were able to work with them. How do you see us moving out there into the frontier in terms of the private sector and the government? Is it going to be confrontational? Do you think we are going to be able to work together? How do you see it? I'll, I'll say something possibly apocryphal, but I think NASA is a wonderful organization and, and it achieves its goals really well. But you have to understand that goal is political, right? It gets us money from, from politicians and they tend to give money to projects and things that will get them reelected. Uh, thankfully, in a democracy, there's a lot of alignment between that and what is good for the people because the people are the ones that vote. But sometimes there's, there's not. Um, with, with NASA, it's, its incentive is to, to make sure that the politicians are happy, and it does that quite well and, and through various mechanisms. Getting things into space and achieving things in space is almost a secondary goal for NASA, and it does some of that very well. But it's not as if it's not like the during the Apollo program, NASA was highly incentivized to beat the Russians to the moon. And everybody bought into that vision and got a line behind that. And great things happened very quickly. Now, there's not that imperative or incentive. And so things move a bit slower, sometimes a lot slower. When you look at commercial industry, it's about making profit. And the incentive there is a lot simpler. If you can provide something that's going to make somebody else more profit, they'll buy it. It's that simple. And so as a simpler mechanism, if you've got a profit motive, investment flows in. It's not stalled uh, very easily by, by other interests. And that's why when, when I was at, at university, I decided we had to do this commercially. Because if you can create a profit incentive, money will flow in. That's just like economics 101, right? There'll be enough investment until the marginal cost of producing one more of these things is equal to the marginal revenue you get for making that one more. And at that margin, there's no profit. But that's the, to create that profit, you'll then get maximum investment. You'll get the most people in space, which was my goal, uh, that you possibly can with that business model. And so that's, that was what really interested and excited me, uh, was, was how to find that business model. And I still think in the space industry, the thing that we're missing, the thing that we most need is business models that work, which comes down to exports from space. Right? If we treat space as a country, like what is the exports from space that would then let us have an internal economy in space? That's really tricky. So that, that's sort of my perspective on it. We need the commercial industry. But then the government can do things that the profit motive doesn't support, like fundamental research and development and those types of things. And even though the incentives may mean that they go a bit slower or, or what have you, it doesn't matter. We still need that and we still leverage off it. So it's useful. The government's work is useful. But I think what's really going to be the big lever that pushes us to becoming a, an interplanetary species, a multiplanetary species, is going to be a profit incentive. Okay, so given that, you've laid that out, and we're, we're talking about the supply chain and all of that, what part of that do you think it would be best to have the government focus on that doesn't compete with you but would enhance what it is you're trying to do? If, if you could just say, hey, NASA, I need you to work on this, or, or U.S. government or ESA, whoever it is, because we do have an international audience, whatever government it is, is out there, where would you like them to play and how would you like them to play so you can do what you do best? Gosh, it's, if I was president for a day, um, it's, it's a little tricky. I mean, it's a, it's a very, it's a very complex thing, but um, when I look at, let, let's look at asteroid mining, right? Because that's, that's okay. the one that I've spent most of my time looking at. There are five big risk areas, right? There's market risk, not enough folks are buying what we want to sell them that we could get from an asteroid. There's geology risk. We're not exactly sure what the asteroids are, are like yet, whether we can dig it, what the, the chemistry of the, of the rocks are like. We don't know enough yet. With the technology, we don't have the technology to extract it and, and, and work on it. Um, but also there's, there's a financing risk. Can you get enough capital together from, from private sources or wherever to, to finance that? And lastly, there's a, a risk in the mining industry they call country risk or sovereign risk. Uh, it's, 
it's uh, the risk that the tax rate will increase or that the mine will be appropriated or something like that. That last one is very much in the realm of government. And in, in fact, it's only in the realm of government. Do you have a, a, a court system that, uh, that has a, a competent court that, that will take jurisdiction and will hear the case and, uh, and follow laws that have been written? Um, and, uh, and so you know exactly how to design your business model, right? The fi- fixed tax rates, that's a real thing. Who am I paying taxes to and how much? These kind of things are important. Unless we get that, uh, it's, it's really hard to design a business plan for a mine. And one of the fundamental things in the mining industry is you can't build a, you can't finance a mining operation unless you have secure tenure over the rocks in the ground, right? Over the minerals in the ground. Because it's that monopoly right to that restricted little area and, and, and those minerals that is the asset that you, you do exploration and maybe you realize there's nothing there and your asset's worthless. But maybe you realize that this asset is actually better than we thought. It's fantastic. The value goes up. We now know because with tests we did, we know how to extract it. The value goes up. Now it's ready to be turned into a mine. That process of creating value by increasing the knowledge and the plan around how to extract those minerals is all built on the back of owning that asset, the minerals in the ground. That exists in every jurisdiction on Earth, does not exist in space. And so how do we establish that? Now, you may have to control all of the world's governments to bring that in or lobby hard to, to create a system. So far, the, the regulations, even in, in the US, Luxembourg, UAE, who brought in um, reg- regulations that say, if you mine it, you can own it. They don't provide for secure tenure of minerals in the ground. And that's, that's lacking. So from a government perspective, that regulatory piece would be hugely beneficial from a, an asteroid mining industry. The other aspects can all be helped, right? Providing a, a a market and saying, all right, I'll buy the first 100,000 tons of whatever is mined or at this price, right? That could provide a market incentive. Um, providing the money for the technology is something the space agencies do fairly well. And so we see technology development happening, and that definitely helps. Providing money for, for the geological exploration missions. And on the ground, the US Geological Survey, most countries have a geological survey where they do geophysics and broad area uh, sort of maps of what the rocks are, and they give those for free to mining exploration companies. Similar way, we're seeing Osiris Rex and Hayabusa, uh, and of course, all the, the lunar programs. So we're getting a better and better understanding of the geology. So the government's already investing in, in, in those things. Um, and then, of course, the financing, where should that come to actually put in place a, a mining exploration program and a, and a mining company? Maybe there's tax breaks. Maybe there's a, a co-incentive a co-investment system. There are various things you could do, but the one that is fundamentally 100% in the government's court is that regulatory side, and it's lacking. And without that secure tenure, you'll never be able to use mining, like terrestrial existing mining finance to stand up an asteroid mining system. And so that one's a super important one. Great, great. So to wrap us up here, let's presume there's somebody sitting out there and she or he is thinking about joining the revolution with us. What is your uh, relatively short to the point? What what is your basic advice to what they what they should do? Don't wait for anybody. Just get on and do it. There you go. All right, perfect. We're going to wrap it up and uh, close the airlock behind us as uh, as we head on out. Dan Faber, uh, you've been an excellent guest, my friend. Um, I look forward to hanging out and continuing this conversation, as we always have and always will. Uh, folks, you're listening to uh, IROC Space Radio. I'm Rick Tumlinson. This is the Space Revolution, and we are out. You've been listening to the Space Revolution Podcast with Rick Tumlinson, a production of IROC Space Radio. Go to irocspaceradio.com for more.